Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Professor Michael Levin. Uh, he's a, a distinguished professor uh, called the Vannevar Bush Professor, part of, of Tufts University. He's part of the Allen Discovery Center, and he runs his own lab where he does uh, some really interesting work into what's called morphogenesis, you know, how uh, embryos and organisms uh, take the forms that they do. And he also does some work with uh, cancer. So, Mike, thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah. Well, uh, as I was saying offline, I wanted you here because uh, you'll be part of the cancer book I'm putting together. And your perspective on cancer, uh, from what I gather, is very unique. So if you can, uh, you know, let listeners know. And in regards to cancer, what, um, what have you been studying about it and what's unique about it that you've discovered? Okay. Well, uh, the first thing I should preface is by saying that, you know, when I refer to cancer, I, of course, I realize cancer is not one monolithic thing. Um, there are many aspects of cancer, and I'm going to uh, highlight one particular aspect of it that I think is interesting and important. But uh, there are many, many facets, uh, facets to this thing. And my, my claim is not that these other ideas are wrong, but simply that there's one other uh, sort of major way to look at it that I think is fruitful. I would also point out that um, the kinds of uh, the basic idea that I'm going to describe now, I certainly didn't invent it. This, this in fact, used to be the, at the kind of the beginning of modern biology with the Waddington, Needham, and those people. This, this used to be the the uh, dominant view, and it eventually fell out of favor. But um, plenty of smart people have said this before me, so I, I want to make sure that that that's clear. But but now we have we have some interesting um, opportunities to really to really take advantage of of this with new technologies that have come out. So I think I think it's a new time for for this this approach. So the idea here, and what we do in my lab is we try to understand how biological systems, and in fact all kinds of systems, some of which non biological, how they uh, underlie decision making. So how do you make artifacts, whether they be made out of protoplasm or cellular or in fact artificial, that can do things like store memories, make decisions um, and uh, scale up to uh, have some kind of coherent system level behavior. And so one of the ways to look at cancer is to ask the simple question of why is there ever anything but cancer? You know, what, what we are are a collection of cells and we all know that individual cells are very competent. So you have amoebas, you have various kinds of uh, ciliates, all, all sorts of single cell organisms, which handle their morphological, their behavioral and their physiological needs on the level of one cell, and they do perfectly well. So that means that in order for them to cooperate together to build and repair something as incredibly complex as a body, let's say a human body, what we're really looking at is a kind of a kind of um, swarm intelligence. This is the sort of thing that people who study behavior of, of flocks and, and ant colonies and so on look at as collective behavior. You have to have a collection of cells, which are individual agents but they can work together towards a goal that belongs not to any one individual cell. It belongs to the collective. That goal might be to build an embryo or to repair an organ or to maintain some tissue or whatever, but they're working towards something, something much larger than themselves. And so when you think about the level of 
coordination and information processing that needs to happen in this collective and how they all need to communicate in order for everybody to be on the same page about what it is that they're building. Immediately, you realize that, of course, there are going to be scenarios where that process breaks down to some extent. It's, it's inevitable. And so, so I think the way to think about um, carcinogenic transformation is as the reduction or the, the scale down of a process that happened during evolution a long time ago which was the scale up of single-celled organisms into a larger collective. And what makes them a collective is not their genetic relatedness necessarily. It's not that, that they're simply stuck together in, in a heap. What makes them um, a, a larger self, a larger agent, is the fact that they're all communicating uh, in a way that, that allows them to pursue a common goal goal-directedness, as I've pointed out in, in a few recent papers, where there are very specific mechanisms that allow cells to communicate in a way that lets them pursue these large anatomical goals. Well, quick question, Mike. So do cells appear to have a common language? And if so, you know, to facilitate communication, if so, has there been any uh, inroads into understanding that language or that communication methodology? Yeah, cells cells absolutely have a common language and they, they communicate all the time uh, via the mechanisms of this are fairly well understood so that there are um, biomechanical ways that cells communicate by pushing and pulling on each other. There are, of course, biochemical signals that cells put out either diffusible um, or on their surface. There are electrical signals, which is what my, my group uh, focuses on. Lots of different ways for cells to talk to each other. And they do have a way to uh, to talk to each other and to understand each other. The, the aspect of this that I think is really interesting that's understudied, and this is something that my lab is, is now working on, is chimerism, which is the ability to show cooperation among cells that are from completely different. They have different genomes. They, you know, people have done things like put um, Drosophila neurons into human brains and, 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 and those, those cells do perfectly fine. And so even, even though they have uh, genetics that are very far apart in terms of evolutionary um, lineage, the cells are very interoperable. They're interoperable at the molecular level, because we can move pieces of DNA from, from bacteria into mammals and vice versa. And they're interoperable at the level of cells and organs, because you can make chimeras and fuse and uh, all of these kinds of things. So, you know, what we're interested in and understanding in terms of cancer is how that multicellularity breaks down. So what happens when uh, an, an individual cell is either, um, uh, for various reasons, is unable to perceive those signals that normally keep it tightly harnessed to this uh, to this greater system the whole body and the self of that cell uh, shrinks from a fairly large size which might be an uh, an organ or or a whole organism and it shrinks to the level of a signal a single cell and when that happens the the cell treats the rest of the body as external environment if you sort of picture the boundary between self and world if that boundary, that computational boundary shrinks to the just to the border of a single cell because it can't hear the cells around it, it thinks it's on its own. At that point, the rest of the body is just outside. It's just environment. And we all know what single cells do in, in the environment. They proliferate as much as they can. They, they exploit the resources as much as they can. They dump entropy and they go where life is good. And this is metastasis and over-proliferation. So my group works on this, this aspect of, of seeing cancer as a breakdown of the scale up of goal-directedness in morphogenesis. What do you think is the perception of healthy cells in a given organ? Do they have a sense of the localized tissue? And um, if they do have I don't know if it's been demonstrated that they have the ability to sense different levels of 
of systems, I guess, in the body is how I'd put it. Uh, what does that look like? That's an in- extremely interesting area of investigation. So c- cells can absolutely sense things that are going on around them. In fact, at considerable distance, we, we just as a simple example, we showed recently that when a froglet leg is amputated at one position, within about 30 seconds, the cells on the other side of the body in the opposite leg that's been not touched or damaged in any way, th- there's an electrical signal that lights up in that region that basically indicates where and what kind of damage happened on the other side. So there's, there's most certainly, and this is just one of many examples, there's most certainly communication. But I think the important thing to keep in mind here is that the thing we're talking about is not a single cell level phenomenon. So it's interesting to ask what individual cells know, but I think it's very important to ask what does the cellular collective know? And I'll give you a very simple uh, example of this. Um, think about a salamander, which regenerates its limbs. So you've got a salamander, you amputate the the, the forelimb, and in some number of weeks, the all those cells have, have, have grown back a perfectly normal limb. It's indistinguishable from the original, and then they stop. So now the fact that they stop, and this is this is important, lots of people study uh, how regeneration gets going and so on. Of course, very few people study how it stops. That, 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 that stopping point is really critical. In, in, order to, in order for that regenerative process to stop at the right time, this requires that uh, the cellular collective can compare current anatomy to the layout of the correct uh, salamander uh, forelimb and then stop when that error, that delta, is, is very low. In other words, it has to continuously uh, ascertain uh, whether or not the anatomy is correct, and then stop all of the growth and re- remodeling when, uh, when that error is zero, so, or, or at least close to zero. So this tells you these kinds of uh, examples from regeneration and regulative development tell you that, that uh, large-scale uh, cellular systems have to process all kinds of anatomical information about what's going on and make decisions uh, accordingly. And these are decisions that are undertaken by the collective, not necessarily by the individual cells. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So what uh, defines collective? Again, if, if I hit you on the head with a wand and turned you into like a liver cell, what would you know about your fellow liver cells or the liver itself or the body? What, what's your guess on how many different levels of awareness there are in coordination a given cell makes and knows? Yeah, I, I mean, it's so, so people have looked at what individual cells know and individual cells usually know who their neighbors are. They oftentimes have both memory and anticipatory abilities so they can they have they they know a little bit about what's happened before in terms of metabolic and uh, and and transcriptional uh, events they know a little bit about what's going to happen next in terms of being able to predict uh, regular types of uh, stimuli that they receive in the body i think we know more about what 
uh, cellular groups know and cellular groups know a lot about the shape, the, the current shape of the tissue, the physical forces at, at, at large um, scale that the, you know, things like cur- like, like curvature and stress and tension and bioelectrical pattern. I mean, that's what we work on is, is cells uh, knowing, uh, th- being able to ascertain the, cur- the, the bioelectrical uh, state of the tissue that they're in. Lots of different things, although this is, of course, a very active area of investigation. I think we haven't even scratched the surface of what all these things know. And one of the cool ideas going forward is to use techniques from um, computational neuroscience to try to decode what it is that they do know, because we don't don't even know what brains know, and we don't really know what brain regions know. And this idea of neural decoding is is very popular. People are still just beginning to kind of work this out, how to decode what brain tissue knows. And we have to uh, I think we have to apply those exact techniques to uh, development and development gone wrong, which is cancer. We have to find out what do tumors know? What do they not know that normal tissues are supposed to know and do this both at the single cell level and at the tissue level? I mean, without possible proof yet, based on what you know, do you believe that? Uh, so, so you're saying that cells, when cancer starts, they go back to like a unicellular state, but when forming a tumor, and especially when metastases form, does it return back to a multicellular state? It's just a different one. Now it's under a different organization, let's say. It, it quit its job with, with your body, and now it has a new job with this other creature that's, that's forming this cancer. It's a very interesting point. So, so I think metastases are still in the unicellular condition. And people have looked at, for example, transcriptional signatures that show that when a cell uh, is transformed, it basically undertakes a very ancient uh, transcriptional program, an ancient unicellular transcriptional program. But I, I think you're right in that uh, what I think tumors are a reboot of development. They're just not going back to the correct uh, histology that you would want at that part of the body. And the reason we know cells can do this is that we, we and, and, and others, but um, for, just for example, our work last year, we showed that cells uh, liberated, skin cells liberated from a frog embryo in, in a novel environment create a new creature. We called it a xenobot, which is a, uh, a synthetic, uh, synthetic organism that basically moves around and does its own thing. If you, you know, from watching movies of this thing, you would, you would never know that it has any relation to a frog. You would never know that it's, it's all skin and doesn't have any nerves in it. It has a totally wild type uh, frog genome and no changes whatsoever. So you would be none the wiser about what it can do just from, from editing the genome. It has no, no mutations, no uh, oncogenes, nothing like that. And yet it's, made, it's rebooted its development into a completely novel form. So while there's a lot to be done here, I think I, I agree with your assessment that I think, I think what tumors are are a, uh, a reboot of some kind of primitive multicellularity. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. How do you think cancer first starts? How do you think it, it begins from healthy cells? Yeah, I'm sure there's more than one way. I, I will I will talk about my f- favorite ways. So my favorite way is that what I think is is really interesting. So there are obviously ways in which you can start cancer with broken hardware. So some of the genome specified proteins, some signaling proteins, and things like this. If you mutate them and uh, sufficiently, and you break the hardware, you're going to get abnormal cellular behavior. Okay, that happens. Um, I think I think a more interesting case is when there's nothing wrong with the hardware. And in those cases, what I think can happen for various, uh, for various reasons that is that 
cells become electrically isolated from their neighbor. And when that happens, and, and we've, we've shown this in our, in our uh, animal models, where we can take perfectly wild type uh, animals, use an ion channel drug to temporarily block um, cells from, from having their proper electrical uh, connections to their neighbors. And they basically convert to metastatic melanoma, even though there was no carcinogen, no, no muted mutation, nothing like that. Because I, I think that one way to, uh, to, to start cancer is to isolate cells electrically from their neighbors so that they basically, as far as their biophysical perception machinery is concerned, they're on their own. And at that point, they revert to what they know how to do. And that process can be started by, by, by chemicals. It can be started by oncogenes. You know, one of the first things that happens after a strong oncogene um, is, uh, is, is turned on is that cells become depolarized, electrically depolarized, and they disconnect electrically. They, they close the electrical synapses to their neighbor. And so I, I think that's one of the more interesting uh, ways to start cancer. Do you think that electrical coupling, i.e. like a cell being tuned into various cellular circuitry or tissue circuitry causes that cell to, to stick to one one orchestra, let's say, versus another, and when that uh, when that interaction with with I guess I'll call it cellular circuitry uh, gets interrupted, then the cell goes to a new regime and it tries to create its own its own existence. But it looks like unicellular at that point. I think cells are uh, in, incredibly competent individually, and they also love to work together to form. At least at least modern metazoan cells do. Uh, they love together to, f- to work together to form various uh, multicellular constructs. So I think what happens when when cells are electrically disconnected from their neighbors, the first thing that happens is they roll back to what uh, to, to protecting and and uh, furthering the goals of the self. And which, which at that point is just a single cell. So I think, so, so I want to point out an interesting thing, which is that people, people often use a sort of game, game theory types of accounts of cancer. And they say, well, cancer is selfish and uh, cancer cells are selfish versus, versus the body. And I think they're no more selfish than any other biological entity. All biological entities are fundamentally selfish. The question is, where do you draw the boundary? So in a typical body where everything is working correctly and all the cells are electrically coupled into one coherent network, the self about which they're being selfish is rather large. And so everybody works together for the welfare of themselves because the cells do not maintain an individual identity. They can't maintain this individual identity because their electrical properties are smeared out across the tissue by the gap junctions and by these electrical synapses. And so inevitably, because they can't really tell uh, in many ways, they can't really tell where one cell's information structure ends and the other begins. They're all one big thing. And they're sort of selfish about that, which means keeping the whole thing going. When those boundaries form and the cell becomes isolated from this uh, giant network, then it's very easy for the cell to tell where the boundaries are. And they're li- literally at the scale of one cell. And then it continues being selfish about the needs of that one cell. So it's this like shrinkage and expansion of this boundary of the self that that goes up and down during embryonic development during cancer during evolution it's it's fluid and that's what we need to track do you think there's a drive towards multicellularity and that's why even though uh, cancer may start out as individual cells you know going on their own they very quickly have a drive towards again multicellularity and that's why tumors and eventually a metastatic network forms yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I think they do. I think that it, it's hard to talk about drives in, for, for a number of reasons. You have to be careful. But I do. I, I think they do. And I think we see this most clearly in the synthetic living machines that we make. When we take cells out of an embryo and put them in a novel context, 
they absolutely work together to make something else, a, co- a, a different coherent organism. They, there's, there's something that makes them work together as opposed to simply, simply crawl off and, and, and be individualized. So at least these cells do have the desire to do that. Um, amoebas will not, you know, paramecia will not do that. I, you know, one can think about what it is about uh, modern um, metazoan cells that makes them, makes them want to do this, but I think they do. And, and it raises the bigger issue of where do collective goals come from? You know, if you, the, the thing with, I'll, I'll go back to this uh, synthetic organism example, because I think it's, it's apropos. If, if you ask, Hey, where, where do the goals of a typical frog uh, embryo cell collective come from? Why do they make a frog? Uh, the answer is always, well, because the ancestors were selected for this particular shape evolutionarily, you know, they, they, they had, a, they had a, a selection force for a particular kind of outcome. And that's why they do it. The thing with these bots is that when, when we create them, they make an, evo- they make a, an, a functional anatomy that has not existed in this frog lineage before it's got nothing to do with with that frog it's completely novel and so the question then is where does that come from if it 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 basically emerges spontaneously in front of your eyes over over about 24 hours in a petri dish and they have behaviors and structures that were not directly selected for by evolution they're repurposing all their genetic hardware to do new new things uh, than than how it was would have been used in a frog embryo so you know, asking where collective goals come from is a very profound question. And I think that's what's going to keep us busy for decades to come is, is really understanding the, that aspect of it. Yeah, I would think collective goals come from individual homeostatic drives. And when you have collective, uh, you know, cells, they're, they're all operating on you know their own goals, but they're operating on the collective. So I don't know if the goal changes very much, but it just expands, I guess, across multiple uh, cells, multiple entities. Yeah, I think I think it does change. Uh, although I'm I'm sure it's related to the goals of the individuals, but I don't think it's a straightforward relationship. So in the case of embryogenesis uh, or, or regeneration, a goal might be create a finger of a particular length and then stop when you're done. Now, no, no individual cell can can represent or even measure. Uh, anything re- remotely related to to a finger that that doesn't exist at the level of a single cell. So individual cells may have metabolic goals. They may have minimization and maximization homeostatic loops on certain parameters. But this this idea of making something that looks like a limb and continuing to remodel w- w- until that limb is correct and and being able to do that from different starting conditions, which which embryogenesis can do, is the appearance of a goal that cannot and did not belong to any of the individual cells. And so I'm sure that those those large scale goals are related somehow to the goals of the subunits, but I don't think it's a very straightforward relation. And I think I think it would be hard to um to to predict or to infer those. You can you can imagine I we we, we wrote this um Chris Fields and I um wrote about this in a in a recent paper on on evolution where we said, you know, if if you didn't know what embryonic development was and uh, you just had no idea what embryos were that they that they existed, and and you you were zoomed down to the level of individual cells uh, on the surface of a of a of a frog embryo, let's say, or a fish embryo, and you looked around and you saw all the individual cells running around and doing their thing, and all with all the noise and all the cells dying and falling off and going in the wrong place, and and all the all the noise and and stuff that happens at that lower scale. Who could possibly predict 
that this would give the same outcome every time you run it. That is, you'd get a fraud, you know, a correct frog every time you run this. You, you would never say that. You would, it would look like a chaotic process. And, uh, and, and you, would, you wouldn't even know that it, would, that it would be reliable, never mind being able to predict what the outcome actually was. You know, it'd be, it'd be all pretty, pretty impossible to look at and say, oh, I see. Eventually, you know, three days from now, there's going to be, you know, uh, X number of fingers and bilateral symmetry and two eyes. All, all of this would be very difficult to predict from, from observations of single cell behavior. So is there a typical morphological plan or pattern in cancers? What do their structures look like? You know, as a metastasis tend to have a certain structure or, you know, primary tumors, depending on the cancer. Yeah, um, good question. I, I know that they exist. I'm, I'm not the best person to give you very specific uh, histological layouts on different kinds of cancers. I think you're better off talking to a clinician about that. But there have been very a couple of really interesting papers on tumors as organs. And in fact, I think that was the title of a couple of these um, tumors as new organs. And people do people have been thinking about this issue of of tumors as not just a collection of cancer cells that haven't managed to sort of disperse, but actually as coherent entities that um, have their own internal uh, process. And, and, and in fact, people have shown that in, in some kinds of tumors, they've lost communication with the healthy cells outside, but they are in fact with pretty good in, in pretty good electrical communication internally. So the tumor itself has established this communication network inside. It's just not connected to the, to the external one. If I had um, two organoids, and one was 99% cancer cells, and I put healthy cells in it. And then I had another organoid that's 99% healthy cells, and I put a few cancer cells in it. What do you think would happen to both organoids over time? Good question. I think I think a lot depends on what cells you're talking about. In both cases, uh, there are data suggesting that, for, I mean, fairly old data at this point, suggesting that embryonic environments can normalize cancer. So there have been, there's been work in mice and also in chicken and also in regenerating um, amphibian limbs that shows that uh, cancer cells put into an actively patterning environment, into an environment where cells are getting very strong cues about what they should be doing, that those cancer cells get normalized and they participate as part of the, um, part of the, the, the correct morphogenesis. So I would say, so based on that, I would predict that under some conditions, you would see normalization and under other conditions you would see colonization of the normal organoid with your with your cancer implant the question is and, and we actually have have uh, projects in our lab right now looking at something very much like this the question is are there enough morphoge- morphogenetic cues in your organoid to overwhelm the baseline uh, behavior of that cell to connect to it and to basically uh, ov- overwhelm the fact that the cell is now considering everything else as just external environment i'm i'm not sure if or if what we call organoids have enough to do that some embryos it looks like do some regenerating organs it looks like they have that capacity i don't know if the poorly patterned organoids that we generally work with in synthetic um, biology, if if they if they have that capacity. Well, if you were to compare a person's liver versus their pancreas, you know, liver can regenerate to a certain extent, pancreas doesn't, so far as I know. Yep. What's the difference there? Do you think there's just more communication at more levels in the liver versus the pancreas, and that's why there's regenerative capacity? Yeah, um, the question of why regenerative capacity differs is is super interesting, and it's not um, well understood. Uh, you know, most so 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 just for example, most um, mammals 
are not good regenerators overall, except for things like like liver. But for example, deer antlers drop off every year. And then the, 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 the deer is a large adult mammal that regenerates up to a centimeter and a half per day of long bone, nerve, vasculature, and, and skin. Just ridiculous uh, rates of, uh, of regeneration. And so, so why is that? Un- unknown. I, I'll, t- I'll tell you uh, one thing about liver is that, interestingly enough, um, liver has a very uh, unusual uh, resting potential. So of most cells in the body that are pretty strongly polarized when they're adult, um, mature, terminally differentiated cells, liver cells tend to be pretty depolarized. They sit at about minus 30, minus 40 millivolts. And this is, it's interesting because it's not quite as depolarized as tumor cells, but it's definitely more like embryonic uh, cells and stem cells tend to be. It's still, it's on the depolarized end. So it's almost like the liver for some reason, which is unknown why, has, has retained this kind of juvenile um, bioelectric status. But, but that, that's, you know, that's a factoid with um, information yet about what that means. So do you think there's a um, majority rule type of effect in any given tissue and that's what governs the collective behavior of it and minority wishes i guess or uh you know homeostatic drive of a few cells that may be somewhat aberrant usually is squelched and immunity backs that up but i guess in cancer at some point or some way like you said the the communication is severed to the point where the cell just goes about what it wants to do or you think there could be other mechanisms by which there's a loss of this connection to the whole there's a loss of uh, quorum sensing or majority sensing yeah, it's it's an interesting topic. I think that I think it's a little more subtle than simply um, counting majority for the following reason. Now, now there there certainly is a thing that 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 looks like um, normalization by inertia. In other words, when we create uh, ectopic foci of of weird voltage that's going to turn into a, an aberrant organ or a tumor or something, usually the neighboring cells around it normalize it. So because the gap junctions are open those cells, if we're not, if we're not really strong about uh, establishing and maintaining this aberrant voltage, it'll get normalized out. It'll get wiped out by the neighbors. So there is this sort of uh, averaging effect, this peacekeeping averaging effect by normal tissue to squelch down any, any weird electrical states that pop up in their neighbors. At the same time, there are other situations. And, and I think, I think the difference isn't, so you, so I don't think you can just count cells. I think it has to do with the details of the electric circuit that's involved in process. There are other scenarios where a, a tiny electrical change can have massive impl- massive implications. So for example, in our work on, on uh, melanoma in the frog model, we showed that it was sufficient to electrically modify only a, f- a handful of cells. I mean, we're talking three, four, five cells at one end of the tadpole. And as a result, the whole every melanocyte, every pigment cell in that tadpole transforms and becomes completely aberrant. And, and we were shocked to find out that it only takes a very few cells. And on the contrary, the, the opposite is true too. Once you've, once you've converted them, it only takes a small region on, on one side of the animal of hyperforced hyperpolarization to inhibit that, that phenotype. So under, under certain circumstances, and, and I'm sure there's stories to tell like this about chemical signaling as well. I'm just talking about the electrical dimension. Uh, there are scenarios in which a very small number of cells can have a profound effect. There's some kind of, there must be some kind of tipping point sensitivity thing in the electrical circuit that we're, you know, we're, we're in the process of um, computationally modeling that sort of thing. What about, um, you know, normal nerve innervation inside of a creature? How much do you think that might govern, you know, in an adult, what would that govern? Do you think that's 
that's a big part of the signaling needed to keep everything functioning properly and to be anti-cancer. I mean, like, has anyone studied tumors and what nerve supply looks like, you know, near a tumor or through a tumor around it? Yeah, this has been this has been studied a lot, and it's and it's kind of interesting. Um, the older data uh, suggested that innervation is suppressive of tumorigenesis because people have shown that if you denervate the regions of the body, they're much more prone to acquire tumors, and so this would be consistent with ideas that morphogenetic information in part is spread by nerves. And we know that because denervation also causes various defects in regeneration and defects in morphogenesis and so on. So on the one hand, there was this story about um, needing good innervation to keep cells from uh, conversion. On the other hand, the more the more modern work uh, tends to uh, tends to look in the opposite direction. And what people have been looking at are um, innervated tumors that are much more aggressive than non-innervated tumors. And I'm not sure those things are necessarily contradictory with each other. I think they're just looking at two aspects, and in fact, early versus late and other, other differences. Uh, I think they're just different aspects of, of this problem. But um, for, for sure, there's, there's a massive role for innervation in all this. I guess in one sense, all the cells of our body are held together by you know various mechanisms, consensus, et cetera. And there's reinforcements of that, maybe through nerve innovation, through, again, cell-to-cell communication, through a whole bunch of factors. Um, and cancer, like you're saying, is, uh, or you're postulating, is, is just being unable to listen to some or all of those factors and therefore going off on their own as a, as a unicellular organism for a period of time. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I think I think that's true. You mentioned a bit about frogs. So you've been able to induce cancer, but have you been able to also stop cancer and make it disappear in a given organism? Yeah, we've done it in frog. Um, what we do is, uh, and, and we're working on it in human cells now, but, but in frog, what we do is we introduce a uh, human uh, oncogene, let's say a, a, one of the nasty uh, KRAS mutations or uh, Glee or something like that, P53, some, some kind of mutation that makes tumors in these tadpoles. And what we, sh- we showed two things. One is that you can tell very early on which cells are going to form a tumor by their, by just by tracking the electrical signature. And this is, I mean, this is something that initially was proposed by Burr in like the 1930s to um, do a voltmeter experiments with rabbits and show that, that you can tell from, uh, from the voltage measurements whether they had an implanted tumor or not. But what we can do now with, with modern uh, voltage-sensitive fluorescent dyes is to, is to get a voltage map of the animal, and you can see exactly where uh, the tumor is going to be formed because you can track which cells have already uh, started going off the reservation compared to their neighbors and developing an aberrant voltage pattern. And then, and then the, 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 of course, the very straightforward thing you can do is simply artificially enforce the correct b- b- voltage map. And you can do this either with drugs, with ion channel drugs, or with optogenetics um, that is uh, introducing novel ion channels, either light gated or not. And uh, yeah, and in that case, you can do both, both uh, normalize existing tumors and prevent tumors from from showing up um and it's 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 quite 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 effective well have you been able to observe literally movies of you know cancer starting to form because of the you know the various fields that you're controlling or cancer disappearing and what does that look like um yeah yeah we have the only limitation is uh, how long you want to do your time lapses for because it's it takes it takes you know days the process to happen or, or, or a week but but yeah, absolutely no. You can see it, and what you what you see is when when the if if you don't if if you introduce a, 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 an oncogene and you don't do anything else, what you will see is that progressively some of the cells you injected 
with it will they will develop a very depolarized resting potential and then they will form they'll start growing out of control they'll make a a, a tumor kind of nodule and then they'll start moving out and and colonizing if you if you at that time artificially force them to be hyperpolarized and thus uh, connecting to their neighbors, they will basically, the tumors disband. So at least in the frog, it's not that they don't die. They don't, um, they don't fall off. They don't die. They, they, they disband. They sort of, the cells move out and they join other tissues and they normalize and that's it. And they, and they sort of do their, do other jobs in other parts of the embryo. So um, in the future, if you fast forward this uh, with this idea and it becomes a commercial technology, you know, let's say I have a, you know, a, a liver tumor. Do you, do you foresee possibly the future that you'd hook me up to, let's say, electrodes or a power source or some kind of band I put around me or, you know, electrical field generator that I put near me and it, it affects the tissue and repolarizes all the cells properly and, you know, through a series of treatments gets rid of a tumor? Do you think that's possible in the future? Yeah, so so I want to be clear about two things. Number one is we we don't have anything like that now, and I want to make sure for anybody listening that I say that because we we do get a lot right. of phone calls from people who unfortunately need help right now. And uh, right now, your everybody's best bet is to uh, go talk to uh, the best oncologist they can talk to. We don't have anything like this device at the moment. I think we will have solutions for this problem. I don't think it's going to be via electrical fields. I don't think it's going to be via electrodes, mostly because. Uh, electrical um, application of electrical fields is is not a great way to control resting potential. You can use it to uh, to spike a- electrically um, active cells like neurons, but it is really not a good way to uh, control long term resting potentials. So I think if if I had to uh, visualize what the final application is going to be, and we think about this quite a lot because we're actually um, we, we, we have projects going on right now to, to develop things like this. I think it's going to be much more about ion channel drugs. It's going to be about a cocktail of ion ch- of compounds that target the ion channels in the cancer cells in a very particular way to get them to normalize their resting. And the, the trick, the big missing piece there is it's actually not the drugs. The drugs already exist. These are, um, we call them electroceuticals, but they're basically ion channel drugs that already people already take for various things, you know, for epilepsy and cardiac problems and whatnot. Uh, the the real tr- the real uh, missing piece is computational. So so developing a computational model that can tell you, given this cell and the channels that they have and the voltage that's incorrect, what channels do you need to open and close? Meaning, what drugs do you need to apply? to get to the correct voltage. And it's a very um, non-obvious process because those electric circuits are not, you, you can't just sort of look at them by, by, you know, look at them with your eyes and say, oh yeah, I see you need to close sodium channels by, you know, by, by a factor of five. You can't do that in your head. It has to be, it has to be computationally modeled. So what we're looking at are uh, machine learning tools that are trying to help us understand the behavior of these electrical circuits and thus um, suggest existing human approved ion channel drugs as anti-cancer medicine. When you're modeling the circuitry, does it remind you of anything? Is the circuitry have the appearance of being ultra complex or are there elements of it that are familiar? Well, it's, it's a, it's a hard question to answer because when, you know, when, when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So, so from one perspective, it absolutely reminds me of things. It reminds me of lots of uh, concepts in neuroscience. And we, we, uh, we appropriate a lot of strategies from computational neuroscience in our approaches to understand uh, uh, cancer bioelectrics. However, 
you have to keep humble about the fact that that doesn't mean that that's the best um, conceptual tool for the job. That just means that's the one we know about. There may well be a much better uh, way to think about these circuits that we are just aren't aware of. And so for the moment, we we are taking a lot of inspiration from neuroscience and actually a lot of inspiration from uh, from computer engineering because there's some important concepts there and we're doing the best we can. But I think it's important to realize that we're just scratching the surface of this whole thing, which means we're operating with tools that uh, conceptual tools that may or may not end up being the right tool for the job. It just happens to be what we have now. And they're very powerful tools and they've only begun to be tested. So it's, it's also possible that these are great because everything I've conserved, maybe this is exactly how everything works and, and, and we'll have what we need, but you got to be open to the possibility that we may actually have to develop some new, um, some new conceptual uh, schemes for looking at these circuits and how they process information. Well, I just wonder if you showed these circuits to a circuit designer, you know, that works for like Motorola and, or Intel or something, you know, would they see anything familiar and go, huh, oh, that's, that's very familiar to what I do. Or is it, you know, have you, have you even tried to do something like that? Yeah. Um, d- yeah. D- directly. I think the answer would be no. Um, there's a lot of uh, surface differences. However, fundamentally under the hood, I think it's very likely that uh, that there would be uh, conserved principles of design. So things, you know, I, I don't know about specific circuit designers, but I bet um, once we really understand this and can uh, sort of describe it, its essence in the in the most parsimonious way, I bet people who work on design of of computational algorithms and certain kinds of robotics and machine learning will will absolutely recognize those and say, oh yeah, I use that strategy all the time to robustness or scale decision making or something like that. But not at the surface, no. It it requires some some deep insight into what what these things are actually doing. Well what do you think is the minimum number of cells in order to uh you know to engage in morphogenesis? I mean in, in embryology it's just one. But in the lab have you tried groups of two or three or four and see if there's a minimum? Yeah, that that's a good question. Uh, the thing is, there are some confounding factors to this. So, for example, for example, it may well be that two cells uh, are sufficient to try to make an embryo, but because their surface area to volume is uh, ratio is is too large, they're just unable to because they can't keep any of the uh, chemical gradients up because because everything diffuses away. They're too small. So, you know, those are the kind of sort of not that that's not a fundamental thing, but it's something that will impact your ability to recognize when, when morphogenesis is happening. It's just, it, it's, you know, it, it might, it, it's just, it's just uh, uh, the, the kind of thing that would stop it from working, even if the cells were trying to do that. I think probably the most interesting thing I can say on this topic is simply that if we ask the question of the bioelectric code and we say, okay, we know that the bioelectric state of a single cell is not the determining feature. It has to be a group of cells. And so people often ask me, well, how big is a group of cells? What, what's, a, what's a minimal computational unit of bioelectricity? You know, what's a pixel in that, um, in that environment? I, I always used to say about 50, and that was just my estimate from what we knew from, from our work in embryos. And at least in, in one cell type, it, there's a modern, uh, modern measurement uh, from, from the work of Adam Cohen at Harvard, who's been uh, doing a lot of uh, building bioelectric tissues synthetically from from the ground up in a, in a dish, and and in at least some of the cases he's looked at, it's about twenty. 
So I think I wasn't too far off, but that's, you know, that that's one kind of number I can put on here, but it's hard to know how many, how many cells are required to, for you get a collective that starts trying to do embryogenesis. And I guess there'll be a prize that, you know, if someone figures it out with 20, then there'll be a race to see if you can do it with 10 or five or see what the real limit is at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's going to be very difficult to unravel the difference uh, between, you know, if, if you've got 10 and it's not working, is it literally because 10 cells is just not enough to know what to do? Or is it because 10 cells together can't, they physically don't have the, uh, the critical mass to overcome, you know, basic physics of, of diffusion and, and things like this. It, it's going to be hard to unravel that, that difference. I see what you mean. Um, if you look at a single cell, I know it depends, but how many different ion channels are there? How many different proto circuits can be made in your estimation from one cell or even just two cells? Well, when you say how many, do you mean individual channel molecules or do you mean types of ion channels like families? Yeah, well, right. Well, first of all, type, how many, how many channels are there total ballpark? How many different types ballpark? And how complex, I guess, is is yes. a single cell in terms of its ion channels and types? The hardware of it, which is the actual ion channels themselves. I mean, there are probably a few hundred uh, different types of um, channels, but all of these channels are multi-multimers and, and, and many of them sort of cross form with each other. And as a result, they make protein channels with different properties. So in terms of functionally, I, I'm, I'm guessing there are probably tens of thousands of different types of actual channels sitting in the cell membrane. In theory, that gives rise to an incredible complexity of, of the circuits that can be formed out of that. Now, what, what you have to realize, though, is that a lot of these things uh, have similar behavior in 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 the long term because these channel these networks are designed to be pretty robust meaning evolution has shaped these things so that they more or less uh, act the same way under challenging circumstances you know just because there's a little bit more potassium in your diet or or you're a, you're a fish and there's some more sodium in the lake you don't you don't suddenly everything just doesn't fall apart and that's because these these circuits are designed to achieve the same they've evolved i should say to to achieve the same goal physiologically the same the same state space reach the same area of state space even from different despite different conditions different starting configurations so uh so what that means is that two cells with quite different ion channel proteomes might still be running the same electrical circuit because because the the, the dynamics of the computation it, it's it's kind of like the same way that when you have two devices that are carrying out the same algorithm, let's say they're multiplying numbers, you you know that under the hood, there could be very different stuff. One could be full of cogs and gears and mechanical, and one could be electronic, and one could be uh, a, you know, a living brain that knows how to multiply. There's a million different ways to implement it. But if you're running the same algorithm, functionally, you're doing the same thing. And so if the question is how many bioelectrical circuits are there, that's a great question. And I don't know, but I'm sure it's smaller than the combinatorics of how many different channels there are. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Well, very good. Uh, last question. What What do you think is going to be possible in terms of therapies for for cancer you know, in the next five years? Or is it going to be a lot longer than that? And what, what will the therapies look like in general? I, I'm I'm very leery of putting time frames on anything, only because the, those kinds of things are very contingent on not only scientific discoveries, which cannot really be anticipated, but 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 also on funding. And so, 
you know, I think I think could 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 this be available in five years if if somebody made a moonshot uh, project out of it and decided to put very serious resources into it? Yeah, I think I think we're we're not that far from that. I think cancer is one of the areas where where bioelectricity could become a biomedical product if, if sufficient reasons were put into it. So I, I don't I don't think five years is a crazy uh, times kind of thing, but but I, I certainly want prediction for an exact timeline. Um, what I think it's going to look like is two types of products. On the one hand, I think we're going to have much better diagnostics. We're going to be using voltage-sensitive dyes to see not only pre-cancer, and you can imagine some sort of a cream you put on your you put on your skin or your oral mucosa that you can see aberrant, electrically aberrant cells. And uh, and also, I, I predict that um, surgeons are using voltage-sensitive dyes to see tumor margins during resection so that you can actually tell if you've gotten everything that to get. Um, so that's the diagnostic side. On the uh, treatment side, I think what we're going to get are uh, personalized, targeted blends of ion channel drugs that will be designed to normalize the electrical state of specific tissue. And uh, there will be computational models that will analyze a particular uh, patient's physiology and their genetics and together come up with a blend of ion channel drugs that they need to take. And I think, I think that that will, that normalization strategies, you know, I'm optimistic about it, but I, th- I think it's going to be a hell of a lot better than, uh, than chemotherapy. Excellent. Well, very good. Mike, what's the best way for people to find out more about your lab? Where can they go? Uh, where they can go is uh, they can go on the web at uh, drmike11.org, one word, dr, so drmike11.org, um, or you can find me on Twitter at uh, drmike11. Very good. Mike, thanks for coming back again. I appreciate it. Very good. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.